Welcome, everybody, to the very first podcast for Local 3369. And we have some special guests. First, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Edwin Osorio. I'm the local president for Local 3369. And then I'm going to have you be introduced to our executive vice president. That is me, Todd Grower. Yes, indeed. And then we also have our first, uh, actually, our second vice president, and that would be Nicole Moria. Welcome. Yes. And we have our third vice president. And who may that be? Hey, everyone. This is Devendra Dial. Okay. And we are the executive board, actually, some of the executive board members from Local 3369. And we know that there's been a lot of turmoil going on in the agency, a lot of talk about the reentry, the pandemic is still going on in some parts of the world, in a country it's as strong as ever. And we really thought that for the very first episode that we'd really want to touch on reentry and talk about the things that really concern you the most about going to work and, and being safe while you're going to work. And there's probably nobody who can do a better job of explaining because our esteemed guest, our very first guest, happened to be on the bargaining team for the reentry MOU for Social Security uh, and AFGE. And now she's on the team that's dealing with the component level, which is the field office and teleservice centers and the card centers. So I'd like to introduce to you our New York Regional Vice President, Angela DiGeronimo. Hello, Angela. Hi, Edwin. Good to be here. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you. And all I can say is because I see all the emails going back and forth and we've spoken here and there. And my first question to you is, have you slept? Has the agency given you a time to breathe? What's going on? <laughs> I don't sleep on a regular, so it's okay. At least the time was used constructively. It's no big deal, but uh, it has been rough. Uh, I, I can't say that we have had a, you know, a smooth sail of meeting of the minds, that's for sure. Uh, it's been a tug of war. Uh, we have leadership that is saying one thing, but their actions are actually something else. Uh, the MOU was hard fought, and uh, if the agency would have had its way, it wouldn't have even looked like half of that. Uh, one of the things that we absolutely insisted on that we would not sign if we did not have it was component level meetings. Uh, the agency had slashed that provision on uh, numerous back and forths uh, of the proposals. So uh, they, they did not give it to us as, uh, you know, here you go, this sounds reasonable, let's put it in there, let's get it done. Now, when you say component, now a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, they might not know what you're talking about. So can you tell us exactly what you mean when you say component level bargaining? Okay, so- And, the, and why the, would it have to be bargained on a component level versus a national level? Okay, so when we bargain on a national level, there are uh, six components, six parties, so to speak, uh, on the union side that represent various um, bargaining unit members. So Council 220, which we are a part of, represents field office and teleservice center employees. So that would have a different uh, set of concerns, if you will, 
going into a reentry plan. It because our jobs and what we do are different than a payment center, so to speak, or uh, a WSU or uh, various other or office of hearings and appeals. So we wanted to be able to talk meat and potatoes with the actual component heads who would be making these decisions. And so that's why we insisted on component level uh, discussions. We actually wanted right off the bat component level bargaining, but we're in discussions right, right now. Boy, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and from your experience in, in, uh, in bargaining and with these discussions, do you get any sense that the agency is really committed to prioritizing the health and safety of the bargaining unit employees? Let's just put it this way. Throughout the bargaining for the MOU, the, the big umbrella one, and now uh, in the two meetings that we've had at the component level already, there's still not a plan for health and safety. There has been nothing put forward that we've discussed, that we've agreed upon, nothing. So I don't know where their priorities lie, but certainly uh, they're not sharing it with us if they have a health and safety plan. I'm I'm glad you said that. I shouldn't say I'm glad you said that. But with that being said, what can employees now expect come March 30th when they're all ordered to come back to, to offices? Well, we're not done yet. Right. So we still have more meetings. There's at least one more. Uh, then if we can't come to a meeting of the minds, we could either decide that the talks are being productive and that we should move forward with the talks. Or we have the option within seven days of when we decide this is going nowhere to put in a bargain for a, a demand to bargain. Right. So if that happens, there's several things that could come along with it. Uh, one of the things we could ask for, we can ask for an injunction, right? And it's not an easy thing to, to get. I'm not saying that, it, you know, we asked for it and we're going to get it. But the particular of this situation is that if the agency were to implement its own plan without bargaining with the union, there's really no redress if the worst were to happen. So let's say we went back into the office and it wasn't uh, a safe situation and someone, whether it be an employee or whether it be a family member or whether it be a member of the public were to contract COVID and get so severely sick to the point where they might die. You can't make that person whole. You can't make that person come back to life. You can't get that family member back. You can't get that employee back. So an injunction would be the way to go because there's, like I said, there's no redress if the agency implements prior to bargaining or in lieu of bargaining. So, so Angela, if I understand correctly, it seems like even though the safest place for a bargaining employee to work would be at home, the maximum number of, of days that, for example, a field office employee will be able to work at home would be two and a teleservice employee four, but the optimal would be five. Uh, is there any chance that an employee can can gain more days, have three days for field or five, four days for field office or five for teleservice? Okay, so let me just say this. The two days and the four days is uh, something that the agency has put on the table, so to speak, right? We're actually uh, advocating for more. 
And with that said, we also understand that, especially in the field offices, that we need to reopen. We need to be available in the office for um, people who have no other choice but to come in and do business with us that way. So five days for the, on a norm, right? Because I'm going to talk about something else in a moment. Sure. But on a norm, five days for someone is not going to be something that's feasible for the field office. For the TSCs, we are advocating for five days because there's really no reason for them to be in the office and, and be exposed or potentially get sick or anything like that. Their work is 100% portable. So that's what we're advocating there. But let's say, you know, we work with our current condition. Our current condition is the agency is saying two days for the field and four days for uh, the, um, the TSC. If an employee meets the uh, criteria for a temporary compassionate assignment, they can put in for that. And that would entail if um, an employee has a family member that's high risk or they're high risk, or uh, I would even say for a, a child that's under five who's not vaccinated, there's various reasons to ask for a temporary compassionate assignment that could lead to five days a week. An employee could ask for reasonable accommodation for themselves if they're not able to um, come back to the office because of their own, let's say, situation with their health. So uh, that's one thing that's available. And that was uh, also uh, negotiated. Then there's also episodic work where we still have schools that are quarantining or uh, they're closing for a period of time because of an outbreak of COVID. If that were to happen, an employee could say, well, my child is has been um, quarantined and I need to be quarantined with them or be home with them. Uh, and so that would be episodic work. If something were to happen with the daycare and they couldn't uh, get daycare for the child, uh, that would all fall under episodic. Angela, can I ask you a question about that? Sure. Um, you know, when when they're forcing these telework agreements, it's going to say, you know, you're going to need child care if you're going to be teleworking, right? So you're going to have somebody watching your kid. How does that play when you have somebody that's under five, not vaccinated, not eligible to go into a daycare or your kids are home um, because they have to be in quarantine, but you still can do this um, telework? Are they going to, you know, the, take the action? The main concern with having children home uh, is that that child isn't going to need your undivided attention to take care of them, right? So if, it, if you've been able, this is, you know, in, in my opinion here, uh, if you've been able to work from home, either because there's another parent there or because the child is pretty much self-sufficient and you can work, then that wouldn't mean that you're taking care of the child. The point is that you, you, that child does not need your undivided attention. Does that make sense? It does. And in my mind, I imagine it to be something similar to, to being on WACU in those circumstances, exactly. just without that title. 
And exactly. Nicole, what, what exactly do you mean by WACU for those of us that don't know what you mean by that? Sure. It's work at home by quarantine. So up until now and up until March 30th, there have been a category of employees who have fallen under this. So it's people who have childcare issues, uh, who have uh, high risk or someone at home who's high risk. Or um, I think those are, are the, pretty much the categories. So that will end on March 30th, right? Which is the target date for returning to work. So once that happens, if we have a school situation or a child situation, that would be episodic. Now, episodic also could be, let's say you contract COVID, but you're not you know, sick enough to take leave. You could still work. You can ask for episodic work and not have to take leave and you can work at home. So now if you're, if you're requesting additional telework under one of the provisions that you discussed, I imagine you're going to have to provide documentation. Now, in the past, Social Security, been, they've been notorious for asking for an abundance of information, documentation. And many of us have experienced how they would ask for something. And, and you give them evidence, it wouldn't be enough. They tell you they want more. They wouldn't tell you what it is. Is it going to be any different? Is there, Are they going to streamline this process to make it easier for employees? There is actually a form that is available right now, which is for the temporary compassionate uh, assignment. And it is a one-page form. Basically, you're attesting uh, that your family member is uh, high risk. You sign the form, you date it, you bring it to uh, the person's medical provider, and it asks for the name of the provider, the uh, provider's practice, the address, telephone number, fax number, the provider signs it and dates it, and that's the end of that. So that, if, for anybody who is asking for a temporary compassionate assignment, that should be what they're submitting. Now, my understanding, Angela, correct me if I'm wrong, but that should not be like faxed or email. That's supposed to be shown through your camera on your on your uh, computer, right? That is correct. Okay. There are uh, what's called GINA laws. That's Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act of, 20, of 2008. And um, that, that has to safeguard people's medical information, genetic information. So you're absolutely right. That would not be something that would be stored or um, transmitted through our system. It, that sounds like something that we may want to share abundantly and make it abundantly clear with the employees that we represent, because I can see some supervisors not being aware of that and in violating, even if it's unintentional, it's still a violation that we want to avoid. Absolutely. Now, so so what are, what are employees doing while they're waiting for their approvals? Are they just coming into the off, office every day? How does that work? If someone is waiting for an approval, again, you want to uh, err on the side of caution because if they're asking for a temporary uh, compassionate assignment or if they're putting in for a reasonable accommodation, if they come in and they were to contract COVID, you can't potentially make that person whole. So if there are uh, anything that's pending, they should stay at work at home status 
until that decision is made, which will give the agency the impetus to actually get this done quickly. And that's why I, I think they've put a deadline of uh, February 25th for the uh, telework agreements and for anything else that you're going to be asking for. So does that mean that, let's say, for example, your status may change? Suppose I'm somebody who doesn't want to have telework, but maybe in the middle of April or May, I decide that I want to telework for three days. Am I out of luck or am I still able to fill out a form and, and, and request it? I would go the other way just to be on the safe side. You could always put in a request because, you see, we're not under normal, you know, a situation. We're not under Article 41, which is the telework article of our contract. We're actually in this kind of like we're trying to figure it out and where there's also a pandemic still going on. Uh, so we have not discussed this at the table. What happens if someone didn't put it in during this period and then decides to. So my advice would be put it in now. You could always come in, but you have the telework agreement already in place. Because yeah. nothing says that if you decided that you want to telework, that you can't then decide, well, okay, I want to come in. And that could be on a week by week basis. Let me ask you a question, you know, taking this a step further. Um, previously with our former commissioner, Saul, he effectively ended the entire telework pilot program, which personally I thought was, it was positive and it was productive. It was. Um, and now with our new commissioner and with the pandemic, who knows, for example, if, if we'll ever leave or if we'll ever get back to a quote unquote norm, like, like the times we lived in before, is the agency proposing an end to this telework proposal, so to speak, or is this a, an indefinite, you know, an indefinite uh, thing that we're bargaining now? Okay, what we're looking at right now is a shot, uh, is a snapshot in time. It's uh, once we return, there will be a six-month evaluation period, and during this period is when the agency is supposedly. Uh, that this is what they've said, they're going to gather data and see if it actually is productive or if we need to find a different uh, solution here. I believe that if they gather the information correctly, if they gather the data correctly, it will prove that it is effective. So the union, however, we're coming to the table saying two days for the field is not enough because if you're going to do an evaluation period over six months and it's not successful, all you could do is go down to one or to zero, which is not acceptable. But if mm -hmm. you start with a four day and four days, you know, you're evaluating during this period, you're evaluating. So let's say you start with four days and two months into the six month uh, evaluation period, the agency finds that that is just not adequate because four days a week, you basically would have 20% of the staff in office on any given day. So let's say that just doesn't work. It's too much chaos. Not it, The public isn't being served uh, at the best way that it can be. Well, then we can, we are going to meet with the union, with the agency during this time. And they could say to us, 
four isn't working. This isn't why it's working. And we would propose, okay, let's go down to three. And mm-hmm. that way it gives us more of an opportunity to be able to find that sweet spot, right? What Absolutely. works? Where is the balance? And that's However, what we're looking for. Is it safe to say that over the last year and 11 months, they've used no metrics to, to see, for example, everyone except management is on five days a week. Have they, have they used any metrics to, to, to measure the effectiveness of telework? They actually are starting to let out some information regarding, um, you know, what, that they do have metrics, right? But again, statistics can be um, manipulated, right? So yes. if they're looking for a way to bring us back and what works, right now what they're looking at, yesterday was the first time that this came out, they're looking at task time. And they're saying that task time is up. But what we asked is, okay, if you have these metrics, then you need to give them to us. And you need to tell us how you gathered them. Because then we'll be able to see, are you skewing them, right? By task time, you know how you get the pop-up that says, you know, what are you working at on right now? Yes. At any particular time? That's how they gather task time. So let's say there is a certain amount of people that are working on a particular task, then they're going to say, well, it's taking this much time for this task to be done. But you're not really looking at what is the actual start time, what is the actual end time. So the the metric that they're using, and it probably will come out that way if they ever give it to us, is not really conclusive as to whether telework or work at home as we are right now is really causing employees to take more time to do things or if it's actually more productive. And that's what we need to see. Is it more productive? But you need to look at the right metrics. Understood. You know, Angela, it it sounds to me like when we do go back to the office March 30th, 2022, it's still not going to look anything remotely close to what it looked like at the end of February, early of March of, of 2020. And, and I understand that C220, Council 220, you're in discussions w- with, with the agency. And my guess is that your goal is to address as many of those changes and to ameliorate the circumstances. Uh, can you give us an idea in conclusion uh, what kind of things you're working on as far as making the office safe and 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 um, how how likely how likely are we to attain any of these uh, requests? Well, first of all, let me just address what you just said. When we go back, it's not going to be the same for the very fact that two years have gone by and each individual employee is not the same, right? We've had experiences during this time. Uh, we've been you know, experiencing a pandemic, each of us in uh, different severity. We've had loss uh, in our lives, family members, friends. So what's coming back to the office is not the same as what was there when we left. So that's one thing. What we're looking to do as a union and what we've been advocating for uh, in many MOUs is we want to see... 
this particular moment in time with these challenges, we want to see that as an opportunity. We want this to be an opportunity to change how Social Security does business. We want to change our business model. We want to be able to leverage uh, telework in order to increase staffing. We want to leverage uh, technology in order to more efficiently process work. And that is the type of things that we are bringing forward. So we're, we're looking at what policy changes can be made and we're bringing forward those ideas so that our work processes are more efficient. So that's what we're looking to do now, whether we'll be successful or not, I, you know, I could only guarantee you that I will push as hard as I possibly can for as long as I'm in the room. And I can tell you, we have a lot of very dedicated union officials who will do the same. And everyone's been working really hard and we're not going to let the bargaining unit down. Well, I can tell you that uh, you, alongside Ralph DeJulius, our council president, and Bill Price, our executive vice president, and everyone else associated with Council 220, you've given us a lot of hope and a lot of reason to believe that we're in good hands. And when we do go back to the office March 30th, somebody's there to look after us. And I want to thank you for your generosity of time. And thank I want, you. And, and I want to thank my partners in crime over here, my executive board for Local 3369. And this is Edwin Osorio. I'm saying goodbye to you today. And we will see you again soon. Thank you very much. Bye, everybody. Take care. Take care. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye.